everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. We have a great show for you. We're talking about two really important stories. We're talking about the labor movement, and we're also talking about the tragic and infuriating and totally unnecessary killing of Jordan Neely. A few announcements, though, before then. Make sure you like the stream. That's just a way to appreciate the stream, fight back against the corporate overlords who try to control us, and subscribe to this channel if you haven't already. You just hit subscribe and then you hit the bell. Also, if you can become Patreon supporters, and that's at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Tonight's stories are going to be all public because they're really important stories about strikes that are happening now, a strike that may happen, and about the killing of Jordan Neely. So the Patreon from this week is an interview, a full interview that I did with Roger Waters, and we already released that early. So Last week, we gave you two Patreons. So that the Patreon for this week is the Roger Waters Patreon that we already gave you. And next week's is going to be great. Uh, you'll see. You'll, you'll love it, I promise. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. What else? You can become YouTube members by joining our YouTube channel, and that gives you access to emojis and badges and also gets your comments highlighted. So our first half of the show is about the labor movement, and I'm very excited to be bringing on two guests. Ben Burgess is the host of the Give Them an Argument YouTube show, a columnist for Jacobin and an adjunct philosophy professor at Rutgers. He writes at Philosophy for the People Substack every Sunday. Matt Leichinger is a UPS driver, an alternate shop steward in Teamsters Local 804, and a member of Teamsters for a Democratic Union. So let's bring on to the stage Matt and Ben. Hi, Matt. Hi, Ben. Hi, Katie. Hi. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me. So, Ben, let's start with you. You have an article about the recent victory at Rutgers. Tell us what your relationship is with Rutgers and also what happened at Rutgers. Sure. So I have been teaching at Rutgers on and off, mostly on, like all but four semesters this time, I think since uh, January 2016, and uh, for a long time, that was my only job. I was living in New Jersey, and I was more or less a full-time adjunct, which is technically an oxymoron, but lots of people essentially do do that. Uh, what that means is that you're, that that's like really your only job, and you're, you're always kept at like just one class a year short of the line where if you went over that line, they would be contractually obligated to reclassify you as full-time and give you, you know, much more money in health insurance and all that stuff. You know, Rutgers, like many universities around the country and community colleges and, you know, private colleges and universities, are, has been relying on adjuncts, on people who are just kind of hired on a class-by-class basis to teach more and more of their classes, which of course they like for the same reason that every employer likes having a more precarious and uh, lower paid, less secure labor force. And when I was still living in New Jersey, I was on 
the executive board of the part-time lecturers union at Rutgers for, for two years. I've just been a, uh, since 2021, I've, uh, I've just been a rank and file, uh, member, uh, but, uh, I have still, even as I've been doing other things with most of my time, you know, writing and podcasting and all that, I've still been teaching part-time, you know, like a, now it's just like a, a class or two a semester for Rutgers. And so uh, I was you know, on strike uh, a month ago for, um, for a week, which, you know, is what the, uh, what the article is about. And we just, and I should say like the strike was a month ago, but we just wrapped up voting on the new contract uh, yesterday. And what was the point of your article? I mean, it's a great article, but tell people kind of the thesis of the article. Sure. So, like, the thesis of the article is that this is an important demonstration of uh, what can be accomplished by, by kind of, you know, holding strong and disrupting, you know, universities in this way. Uh, that you know the the adjunct union at Rutgers is relatively well established, but adjunct unionization most other places is a very new phenomenon. So you can be pretty sure that uh, both labor and management at other colleges and universities around the country are going to be watching this pretty care. You know we're watching this pretty carefully to uh, to see what happened, and the result I think is really encouraging that uh, this you know no contract of course is perfect. Um, you know that, but it's this one is a big step in the right direction. That there's uh, so all three of the faculty unions at Rutgers were on strike, so that's one for like full time professors and grad students, and one for part time lecturers, uh, and then there's there's one that's like the, the med school basically, and um, everybody you know everybody got significant gains out of the contract. I mean, just to focus on the case, the part. The aspect of it that I know best, uh, adjuncts at Rutgers actually got a 43.7% uh, pay increase uh, over uh, the life of the contract. And some of that's actually retroactive because we've been working for over a year without a contract uh, by uh, about a year without a contract by the time uh, the strike happened. And, you know, that's like a year of Rutgers drag its feet at the, uh, at the table uh, and also the president of Rutgers, Jonathan Holloway, who's a uh, who's, who's somebody who likes to think of himself as a very progressive person, is like a you know scholar of like the uh, you know history of racism and all this stuff. Is uh, a uh, was actually making legal threats about retaliation if we went on strike because uh, he said that public sector strikes are illegal in New Jersey, which isn't really true. There have been injunctions sometimes in the past uh, made by judges, but you know, I mean, show me the law that says that public sector strikes are against the law, you know, law in New Jersey. There isn't one. Uh, but, you know, he had been saying it was illegal, that he was going to get an injunction and all of this. But uh, over the course of just a week, you know, got these, you know, I mean, there was some more bargaining after we came back. But I mean, like, got the sort of uh, basics of the contract locked down uh, in this tentative framework. Uh, and and I think it's a really remarkable uh, victory that happened over over the course of, of just this week uh, that we were on strike at Rutgers, and I think it's an encouraging thing because kind of broadening out the view from just Rutgers or even just colleges, like even just like the, the college context specifically, in a much more general context, I mean, I think that the adjunctification 
of universities is just one small part of some much bigger changes in the structure of American capitalism. You can also talk about, you know, the replacement of unionized cab drivers with ultra precarious Uber drivers and, you know, a lot of uh, other familiar examples of this. And, you know, the only way to turn any of this around is with all kinds of unrest happening in every sector of, uh, of the economy. And I, I think in particular um, that, you know, what thinking about this case or thinking about, you know, what I know you're, you're going to talk about soon about the, the screenwriters, I think really brings home is that these sort of trends towards increasing precarity and worker powerlessness that, you know, can be reversed in this way are things that impact every sector of the economy. And there's all this like really unhelpful stuff that's sort of floating around some of it's even among people who think themselves as leftists. I think a lot of it's just sort of people who are sort of would think of themselves kind of vaguely populist about how, uh, well, uh, if you're talking about like adjunct professors, you're talking about screenwriters, you're talking about this sort of privileged, um, you know, something other than the working class that, you know, that like people, I've, I've seen people use phrases like the laptop class uh, or, you know, the professional managerial class, which is, I think, a phrase that has some legitimate meaning, but also like just because you went to college or you have a job that, you know, you might be tempted to think of as a profession doesn't actually mean you exercise any managerial authority. And I think all of this stuff is, is incredibly unhelpful. I think that like, um, you know, workers organizing going on strike anywhere is, is, is helpful everywhere. Right. And we're going to talk more about that and about the claim that there is a kind of division between laptop workers and worker workers. So, Matt, tell us about what is happening with UPS workers right now. Totally. So right now, um, the Teamsters, UPS, those national and supplement agreements are um, going through negotiations right now. So um, every five years, we have a five-year contract. And so the contract expires on July 31st of this summer. And so uh, we've just like wrapped up the supplemental um, negotiations and are starting to move into national negotiations for the contract. Um, you know, the contract, there's a national agreement that covers all roughly 350,000 uh, UPS Teamsters. And then, like, based on regions or locals, there's supplemental agreements. And so, right now, all of that's uh, getting negotiated. And um, this is in the midst of, um, or shortly after, an election of a new Teamsters leadership after about 23 years of, um, of you know, Jimmy Hoffa, the old, famous, infamous Teamster leader. His son was uh, president of, of our union for 23 years, and there was a big reform effort. He retired, but there was um, basically um, another slate that he kind of endorsed, and um, there was a big movement to elect this new leadership um, under Sean O'Brien, uh, the Teamsters United slate, which was uh, endorsed by TDU, Teamsters for a Democratic Union. And so this negotiation is also the first contract that the Teamsters United slate is going to be negotiating. And a lot of the issues that are coming up in this negotiation are some of the issues that um, the leadership actually campaigned on. Because um, one of the big issues uh, is this like two-tier driver position, the 22 fours. Um, it was actually something that the union, um, not the membership, the membership actually voted against it. But Hoffa used 
this archaic bylaw, the two-thirds rule, to force um, this contract on the membership. And so it was a seriously unpopular um, decision made by Hoffa at that time, and it was a, a real kind of catalyst for for change. And so we're we're in the midst of this, um, you know, hopefully. It'll, it'll be a, a really strong contract that we'll get out of it, and it'll be like a revitalizing thing, not only for the Teamsters Union, but then also for just like the labor movement in general. And you're someone, uh, we actually have some photos, Brad. Maybe you can, uh, I texted you a photo of uh, of Matt on the picket line with the uh, WGA workers. We can show that at uh, some point during this interview. But you've been on the picket line uh, with, uh, here we go, there you are on the picket line yeah. with the Writers Guild. What makes this strike important for you? And this this also speaks to what uh, Ben was just alluding to. I just want to quote something in Ben's article and then ask you to respond to it. Ben writes, some self-described populists or even socialists seem to feel a perverse need to deny this commonality of interest. Screenwriters and adjunct professors are dismissed as part of a laptop class that has little in common with real, quote-unquote, real workers, a category supposedly limited to, typically, dirty lunch bucket men doing tangible labor. But that's just a divide-and-conquer tactic, wittingly or unwittingly deployed on behalf of the employing class. And then he goes on, if it's true enough that some jobs are done on laptops and some have to be done in person and that the ability to work from home is a real privilege, it's also true that membership in the laptop class is no guarantee of a more privileged position overall than a worker who has to punch a time clock at a job site. And then he goes on, class is defined not by your relationship to your computer, but by your relationship to objective economic structures. Do you own your business or do you have to sell your labor time to someone who does? Do you give orders or just follow them? So how do you see this relationship between, for instance, UPS drivers and screenwriters? Yeah, I mean, I I think that that distinction is totally correct. I mean, when you're talking, I think it's important to make this distinction between, you know, like a capitalist class or an asset class, people who own the means of production versus, yeah, people who have to work for a wage for a living, that's a pretty, I think, basic and abstract way of looking at it. Um, something that that really connected to me while on um, while I was on the picket line this past Friday in talking to uh, one of the members of the guild was the fact that um, what they're fighting for is is it's against like the gigification of their work, um, the increasing precarity of it, and also. Um, they're they're dealing with sort of the consequences that the new like streaming economy has um, really kind of like forced upon them, which really boomed during the pandemic. I mean, streaming would existed before the pandemic, but because the pandemic sent so many people to work from home or stay at home, a lot of people were consuming all types of things just from home, whether that be movies, TV shows, and then also all the things that that I was delivering. You know, that Amazon workers were delivering, FedEx workers were delivering. And so during the pandemic, there was there was there were changes that were happening in the economy. Um, next day delivery, people expected and needed things to arrive immediately. And the same thing was true of the content that they were like consuming on Netflix or HBO or whatever it is. And so during the pandemic and, and it not only during the pandemic, but even continuing now, uh, bosses, you know, kind of like took advantage of that demand and started squeezing workers, whether that be, um, you know, workers in the entertainment industry, whether it be UPS drivers, Amazon workers. Um, bosses saw that, they saw the demand, and they 
they went hard and they started squeezing workers for as much production as possible. And while they were doing that, they also tried to, um, you know, get enough leverage over them to, to, to chisel away at whatever kind of protections or conditions they had won over time. And so it's, um, you know, increasing flexibility, precarity, gigification that we're seeing across like the economy that the capitalist class is basically trying to make the norm. And so even though like the work that I'm doing on a day-to-day basis looks a lot different than the work that a writer would do, um, the, the fact that they're fighting against this precarity, the fact that they're organizing and fighting for conditions that are fair in this new kind of economy, it just translates so well um, into sort of what we're doing. And obviously, like if we're going to support them on the picket line and saying, wow, I really connect with that struggle and talking to them about how as a UPS driver, I connect with that struggle. We're hoping that, you know, in the same way, they'll see that and they'll be like, wow, so if we go on strike, they're going to be encouraged to support us too. And this is how you build a working class movement. This is how you build a strong labor movement where people are saying, okay, just because we don't do the same job, work for the same company or members of the same union, our interests are actually aligned. And there is another class, the capitalist class, the asset owning class, the people who own the means of production. They are the people who will do whatever they can to take what we have away from us so that they can keep it for themselves, right? And we have to recognize across all industries that we have more in common with these other people and these other industries than we do with the people who own the companies that we work for, right? We have a lot more in common with the writers than we do with the major shareholders at UPS, the CEO. So um, that's why I was there. That's why I was really happy to be there. And um, honestly, it's been really exciting to, to see that movement, especially also Teamsters, um, or Teamsters in the entertainment industry as well. Um, so that, that's another aspect of it that is pretty exciting. Actually, they're, the Teamsters who drive the trucks onto the sets and stuff like that are, are much more deeply intertwined in this fight than like a UPS or UPS. Right. And so, um, and we're talking about the Writers Guild of America strike, which started um, May 2nd after negotiations with the Alliance of Motion Picture and television producers fell through. And we're going to be talking about this uh, strike again next week with the, a screenwriter. But uh, I wanted to make sure that we talked about the, uh, the, the Rutgers strike and also uh, wanted to make sure that we pushed back against this idea. I don't think it's very popular, but we've been seeing it pop up this kind of divide and conquer framing, which is that there are real workers who do certain jobs and then there are other workers who uh, do jobs that aren't as um, kind of uh, blue collar. And therefore we somehow don't have to care about their labor rights, which I think is pretty ridiculous. Anyway. Yeah. Um, So, uh, Ben, what is next for uh, you in terms of organizing or Rutgers? And then I'm going to ask you, Matt, about what's up for what what's coming up next for UPS. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of of Rutgers, uh, the big thing I would point out is that as much as this contract uh, is really a massive improvement, certainly financially, on uh, the way that things were before. Uh, it's certainly not 
you know, anything like all the way to uh, the, you know, a lot of the basic issues that caused this in the first place being fully dealt with. Um, so just two obvious instances of this, again, I'm just going to focus on the adjuncts because that's the part that I know the best, are that uh, one, <laughs> if you're an adjunct at Rutgers, you don't have health insurance, right? I mean, that, that's, uh, that, is still, that is still a big thing that, you know, has been talking about forever. And, you know, uh, what will work on I and mean, maybe I'll now be better able to afford to buy it from the exchange, but you shouldn't have to. Uh, and uh, two, that while this is a really long step in the direction of this, uh, I think that it's it's not, um, I mean, it's definitely not all the way to like what we've been talking about since, you know, I got involved in the PTL Union Records in 2016 which is fractional pay. So the idea of fractional pay is just very simple, that if you teach um, half of the teaching load of a full-time, you know, non-tenure track, a faculty member non-tenure track, because if you're tenure track, you can argue that people, you know, serve on committees, do research, and you could argue that some of the pay gap is, is because of those things. But if you have like a pure NTT, like a pure teaching full-time job, that if you are an adjunct and you teach half that person's uh, scheduled classes every semester, that you should get paid at least half as much. That you, if you are teaching two thirds of it, you know you should get you know, paid two thirds of that, right? That you should, in other words, uh, that adjuncts should get equal pay for equal work, uh, which would not only be good for adjuncts, uh, but it would be good for. Uh, all the other kinds of academic workers at, at Rutgers also because uh, it takes away the ability of the university to to use, oh, we can just get an adjunct to teach these classes as a way of like, well, we don't have to get a new full-time line or whatever. It'll be cheaper for us to do it this way. If it's not actually cheaper, it's just no, I mean, whatever percentage of a full-time teaching load people are uh, getting paid, uh, that's what they get. I think, you know, that has some pretty obvious appeal in terms of basic fairness and I think it's the kind of thing that you really need to fight for to, you know, to get, to sort of start to roll back the boulder of this, this like larger trend in American higher education. But, you know, I, I also think, again, this was like a long step in the right direction. But I mean, this is also means that like none of these are dead issues for, uh, for next time uh, that we can have, you know, I know like the Chicago Teachers Union uh, was a model that people talked about a lot in the uh, the PTL union at, at Rutgers because of the way that, uh, you know, after, you know, I mean, getting new leadership, which also the, the PTL union uh, is something that happened within the last couple of years that, you know, got new and much better union leadership uh, and taking a more militant approach, we're able to, um, you know, that the CTU was able to get a lot of their, basic, you know, bargaining for uh, for the common good demands, but it, it took like several cycles of this for that to happen, right? So so I don't necessarily expect it to, you know, didn't necessarily expect it to all happen this time. I think we got a long way there, but I mean, I think it's it's still an ongoing thing as far as uh, me personally, since, uh, since I'm actually, you know, I'm teaching for Rutgers online in Southern California now, I want to, you know, go make a pilgrimage to the uh, WGA picket line when I have a chance. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, uh, just a, a quote, uh, comment from Sparky. Without effective labor unions, the middle class isn't big enough for economic stability. A large middle class, both bourgeois and union, are essential. 
Um, and Matt, what is up uh, next for the Teamsters and for UPS workers? And you wrote, you tweeted out, it's going to be a hot labor summer. So what's <laughs> in store? Yeah, well, I, you know, I mean, like I said, the contract expires July 31st. Um, the leadership has made very clear that we're not going to extend the contract beyond that July 31st deadline, which means that if we don't have a contract that the membership is satisfied with by uh, midnight July 31st, or I guess midnight midnight August 1st, there, there will be a strike. And so right now, um, you know, from a rank and file perspective, obviously from like a negotiating committee perspective, they're in negotiations, you know, all the time, uh, every week, you know, and the leadership has been tweeting out and sending out updates on like how negotiations are going. Um, and so that's what like leadership and the bargaining committees are are doing right now. From a rank and file perspective, I mean, what we need to be doing is building our contract action teams. And so that means, you know, in, in all of our buildings and all of our locals, we need to be building networks that go beyond just sort of like the basic stewardship because that's not really even enough people per uh, per building like we need to be building like communication networks so that we're developing more leaders who are ready um, to take whatever information we're getting um, from our leadership about negotiations and spreading this information to members and also like engaging in discussion about well is this something that we like is this something that we don't like are we gonna are we like do we want to go on strike? Is this contract like going to be good enough? And building like those kinds of networks takes a lot of time. Like it takes a lot of focus and energy. Meanwhile, you know, we're working, you know, a lot as well. So it's, it's on top of all that. We've had um, a few rallies. There have been rallies that we've also been organizing um, in our local that they've been happening across the whole country. And so, Really, what we need to be doing is building up like a credible strike threat, making sure that everyone knows what the issues are, that people feel prepared and educated enough to decide for themselves whether or not they're ready to accept whatever contract our, our leadership, um, you know, can get for us. And also building up um, community support as well. And so um, reaching out to like political organizations, church groups, other type of community organizations to make sure that if it does come to a strike, we're actually going to be prepared not just to be out there on the picket line alone, but that we'll have uh, support from the community, from other unions in the area, from other Teamsters um, locals, like within the Joint Council. And, you know, this is all stuff that, that we're doing all the time. So um, it, it's going to be a hot labor summer in the sense that I think a lot of people are going to be waking up to what's going on, you know, like the Writers Guild strike, the Rutgers strike, and Teamsters strike, though, with at UPS would be massive. I mean, there's a, a UPS route on every street in the United States of America. Every single town is going to be affected by something that big. And so if we can win, it's going to, it's going to, like, analyze, like, a real, it's, it's going to be a real, real big kind of earthquake moment for the labor movement um, in a way that I don't think we've seen in the U.S. labor movement in, you know, in decades, essentially. So um, that's why it could be a hot labor summer. Immediately after that, you've got the big three negotiations with UAW. And so, meanwhile, Amazon workers are organizing as well. And so if we can really, like, hit, you know, make a, a big, you know, punch in the um, in, into corporate America, like, we're hoping that that'll also send shockwaves out to the rest of the labor movement, workers everywhere. 
And what are some of the major issues that are going to be coming up in your negotiations? Yeah, so one of the major issues is this two-tier driver job, the 22-4, which I mentioned before. Um, another major issue is going to be part-time pay uh, for the inside, like preload workers, unloaders. Um, that's another uh, really huge issue because we see in our union a pretty big disparity between the majority of the workforce, which is actually part-time, and um, this sort of and like the regular package car driver. Uh, who, you know, like UPS loves to harp on the fact that a, a top pay regular package car driver makes a little over $40 an hour um, with a pension and solid health care. And, and, you know, that's kind of like the, the gold standard of like um, UPS Teamster union job. But the reality is the fact that the majority of the workforce is actually part-time. And part-timers in New York City I mean, across the country, uh, start at $15 an hour, which is also the minimum wage in New York City. So the reality is that a lot of people who actually work um, at UPS and are Teamsters are basically making like poverty wages. They can't actually support like a family. In New York, this is, you know, the, the difference between talking to a part-timer and talking to a, a UPS driver who's been around for 20 years, it's, it's, it's completely different. And so... This uh, contract fight is also really, you know, it's really important that we win big for those part-timers because that's something that, you know, Amazon workers will see as well, seeing that a lot of Amazon workers are in warehouses. And we need to win a strong contract for the warehouse workers at UPS so that um, Amazon workers see joining the Teamsters as, like, an attractive option. Um, yeah. You also had an article uh, that you were for Jacobin called UPS is installing surveillance cameras in our trucks, but not air conditioning. What's the status of those, right. uh, that combination of installation? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the inward facing cameras is another one of those issues that I believe was made to be like a strike issue. I believe Sean O'Brien's talked about the fact that we're standing strong, not going to allow the inward facing cameras which is something that is kind of a norm, I think, like in the trucking industry. I think Amazon and FedEx both have them. Um, but this is, you know, the, the union difference. This is why it's so important to recognize, like, what collective bargaining can do. Is you can say, wait, hold on. Like, we don't want the inward facing cameras. Like, FedEx, Amazon don't have an option. They're in the truck the next day and there's nothing you can do about it. We can actually bargain um, to have that rejected. So... Um, we haven't had them installed in our building. Um, I think they've been installed in some other buildings um, in the local and around the country, but that's definitely something that I think we're trying to get language on. Um, and in terms of air conditioning, I, I don't know what the status of that's going to be. I, I believe that it was made a contract issue, but uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't tell you what the status of that is in, nego in negotiations. But do you do you have it? I mean, do you have air conditioning now? Oh no, no. There's no air conditioning in the trucks. Um, and uh, oddly enough, uh, ironically, you know, this summer I think it's going to kind of come back and bite UPS in the butt because everyone's going to remember. You know, we we had this rally and this big kind of like movement last summer, and kind of set expectations a little bit higher. And so this summer, I think it's going to. Uh, it's going to be hot, of course. People are going to be probably going to the hospital again. Hopefully, you know, knock on wood, no one will die. But someone died last summer, so it could easily happen again. And um, 
you know, it's outrageous. And so this could be something that agitates UPSers and will hopefully kind of serve in our favor in terms of um, getting people agitated enough to, to get ready to fight for, for even more. That's insane. So yeah, hospitalizations yeah. and someone even died because of yeah. the heat. Yes. I can't imagine being in a hot truck without it's air like, conditioning. Yeah, it's like an oven in the back. I mean, it's, it's bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Matt. And you can find them on uh, on Twitter. Uh, Matt, I put your Twitter handle in there. Ben, you're... Thanks. What are you? B. Burgess? At uh, Ben Burgess. Uh, oh, Ben Burgess. Okay, at Ben Burgess, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, and thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having thanks, us. Katie. Bye, guys. Bye. And uh, that was our first uh, segment. Thank you again so much to Matt Leichinger and to Ben Burgess. Uh, Learned a lot and looking forward to uh, following up on this story. Also, thank you, Hannah, for becoming a uh, YouTube member. Uh, Hannah C., thanks a lot for that. Uh, Just a reminder to please like the stream if you haven't already and also subscribe so you don't miss great streams like these. Also, um, join us right after this at uh, Colin, and the link to that is in the description. Now, we're going to be bringing on two more guests. We're going to be talking about the killing of Jordan Neely. Um, our, our guests who are coming on are Milton Perez, who is an activist and a homelessness union leader with Vocal New York. He spent over five years in the shelter system. We're also bringing on Eugene Purrier, a journalist at Breakthrough News and the author of Shackled and Chained, Mass Incarceration in Capitalist America. And both uh, Milton and Eugene have been uh, at recent protests around the killing of Jordan Neely. So welcome, Eugene and Milton. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Also, thank you, Monty L., for becoming a new member. Great. We've got two new members. Um, So I thought we could start off, we're obviously going to be talking um, about Jordan Neely, who was 30 years old uh, and who was choked to death on a New York City subway train on May 1st. Um, But I thought we could start by watching a, um, uh, just some footage of someone who actually shot, who videotaped what happened, uh, his recollection. This is from Democracy Now!, Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. Here in New York, 11 people were arrested at a protest Monday night uh, demanding justice one, for Jordan Neely, 30-year-old unhoused black man choked to death on a subway car last week by another passenger. Jordan Neely was crying. There was fear. When police arrested 13 people at a protest where they went on former Marine name. We'll just play people were arrested at a protest Monday night demanding justice for Jordan Neely, 30-year-old unhoused black man choked to death on a subway car last week by another passenger. Jordan Neely was crying out that he was hungry and thirsty when he was fatally attacked on the train by a 24-year-old former Marine named Daniel Penny. Penny was interviewed by police detectives, but 
was released. He has not been arrested. Monday night's protest follows a similar demonstration Saturday when police arrested 13 people at a protest where they went onto the subway tracks and demanded Penny face charges. This is Juan Alberto Vasquez, an independent journalist who was in the subway car and filmed the fatal chokehold. He's speaking to NBC News. The man got on the subway car and began to say a somewhat aggressive speech, saying that he was hungry, he was thirsty, and he didn't care about anything. He didn't care about going to jail, that he didn't care that he gets a big life sentence, and it doesn't matter if he died. If there was fear, the people who were bluish or who were there, where he separated everything, moved from their place. I stayed sitting in my place because it was a little further away. But obviously, those moments, well, one thinks fear, one thinks he may be armed. The law firm representing Daniel Penny released a statement Friday expressing, quote, condolences to those close to Mr. Neely and adding, quote, Mr. Neely had a documented history of violent and erratic behavior, the apparent result of ongoing and untreated mental illness. When Mr. Neely began aggressively threatening Daniel Penny and the other passengers, Daniel, with the help of others, acted to protect themselves until help arrived. Daniel never intended to harm Mr. Neely and could not have foreseen the, his untimely death. The law Okay, so uh, I guess I want to start off by having you guys respond to this. Uh, yeah. This, yeah. As far as uh, uh, I'm concerned, you know, uh, there's no uh, uh, no reason to put hands on somebody just because you're afraid of them. You know, uh, so some of the, the phrases that I'm hearing, aggressive, aggressive speech, things of that nature, I've never heard before. It's, you know, makes no sense to me. Um, and even though there were warnings about the video and, you know, this, that, and the third, uh, I was not prepared to actually, you know, see what I saw, you know, as a basically being somebody basically strangled to death. Uh, those that, you know, have avoided the video, you know, uh, continue to do so. This is uh, something that uh, made me sick. It was sickening. Uh, and then you just see the, the headlines and, and some of the reporting by, uh, uh, by the press just the, the, the continued dehumanizing of, of a, ho a homeless person, uh, uh, blaming the victim, you know, throughout, you know, being a being a native New Yorker, you know, growing up here, you know, uh, through a uh, middle school, high school, uh, living in the Bronx uh, in, in Brooklyn uh, for the past over five years now to the shelter system and I'll be in my own place. The, the people that have been around, this is not an acceptable thing to do. There are fights, there, you know, all kinds of things that happen. But when it gets to the level that somebody, you know, is grabbing somebody by the neck, you know, it, it stops. You know, say, hey, what, what are you doing? You're choking them. You're killing them. Stop it. You know, you grab people, you separate people. So to uh, not only see that did not happen and, and they went beyond that, it's, it's somebody actually fighting for their life. You have somebody else uh, uh, holding them, preventing them to, you know, from, from fighting back. It's just beyond my understanding. I've, I've never seen that uh, as something that's not acceptable uh, in, in any world, you know, that, this, uh, that, that I've been in, you know, whether it's in the shelter, whether it's in the projects, this is not something that's acceptable. Horrible things happen, but it's not acceptable. You know, this is something that is sickening uh, to my mind, my soul, and, and I appreciate those have a, who have spoken out against it and hope they continue to do so. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think, I don't know, the thing that really struck me the most is the statement he's released through his lawyers, 
where they were also making these negative statements about the history of Jordan Neely. But here's the reality. Daniel Penny didn't know any of that when he decided to take his life. So that's actually totally irrelevant to what he did. And as we know, no eyewitness has actually claimed that there was direct, you know, threats or him attacking people or whatever. And, you know, look, I take the subway every single day. I'm relatively new to New York. This is my third year here. But, you know, Monday through Friday, a lot of things happen. A lot of people yell. I've actually seen this exact situation of someone who's angry, fed up, yelling. I've seen people having, you know, mental health crises. I was on a train last year where someone was really having a crisis, tried to stab some people with a hypodermic needle. Um, you know, I mean, so things go down. But even in that last situation, which I mentioned, I mean, the the I mean, no one was trying to kill the person. And, and I think that ultimately we have to look at the fact that Jordan Neely was, yes, he might have been yelling. Yes, he might have thrown down his jacket. Yes, he might have said, I'll do whatever. But none of that, none of that is a license to kill. And self-defense as a concept is about using responsive force. So I actually think that the fact that people are calling this self-defense is also slander on so many of the people, especially from, from oppressed communities who have had to defend themselves against you know, unwanted attacks and other things over the year. This is not that. Daniel Penny just decided that he felt Jordan Neely was a threat that had to be taken down. He decided to use what almost anyone knows, especially a Marine, is a potentially highly dangerous maneuver, even when it's done for a short period of time. And he chose to do it for an extended period of time. And I feel that now all we're really seeing is the are these attempts to muddy the waters and not ask, to me, what is really the ultimate question here, which is how do we even end up in a place like this where someone didn't have stable housing, didn't have enough to eat, didn't have enough to drink? I mean, I've had the opportunity to talk with some of the people who, who dance with Jordan Neely, who are a part of his, his circle, uh, talking about his talent. And you just think, why do we live in a society where someone like Jordan Neely was choked to death and not a place where he could be using his talents not to survive, but just to entertain and to thrive and to do more? So to me, all of what Daniel Neely is saying is one, I mean, uh, uh, Penny, all of what Penny is saying is 100% besides the point and not relevant to the fact that Jordan Neely was not attacking anyone, had not directly assaulted anyone, had not done anything other than, than speak loudly and throw a jacket on the ground. And this person decided to kill him. And what about him? We don't know anything about him. I mean, they're telling us everything that we need to know about Jordan Neely or what they think we need to know. But what about this guy, Penny? What's his background? I mean, you know, from what I've been told, and again, I'm not from New York, but people I know on Long Island tell me the place he's from on Long Island, West Islip, has a reputation for being extraordinarily racist, for being a place where things are going on. So I want to know more about his background and other pieces like that. But let me, before I I get you on a high horse here. Stop there. No, yeah. And and some other important things to know. So obviously Jordan Neely was a um a Michael Jackson impersonator. Uh also another thing to note is that this was not a momentary chokehold. They put him in a chokehold for 15 minutes. Uh people observed that he had defecated on himself. Um, mm. someone pointed that out. Someone else was like, Oh no, that's an old stain. Don't worry about it. Um, people started to, to say things that they needed to stop doing that. Um, but it's, uh, I mean, it's very, it's a brutal, brutal, uh, thing that happened. I couldn't bring myself to watch the full video. So I just read about it because I couldn't watch it. And even the comments, one of the comments that was made that the people that were there did not believe that, uh, he was being harmed. They were wrong. You know, all this talking about 15 minutes and then the, 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 uh, the mayor and whoever said that, uh, oh, no, no, it was six minutes, if, the, if that, that makes a difference. It takes seconds. Anybody that's been in these type of situations 
whether you were younger, you know, people playing around. I've never actually been to that level, but, you know, it's, it, it takes seconds to start losing your breath. You know, people stop, you know, stop. You know, I, I understand what it is. So it's it just the, the rhetoric, you know, and, and the criticism uh, uh, that people hold towards the victim, you know. So at, at a certain time, you know, speaking as a formerly homeless person, you know, like I said, over five years in the shelter system, uh, I accept any criticism. So after, after that, when is that critical eye going to turn to the actual systems that, that we're dealing with? You know, whether, you know, the, the brother uh, Jordan coming out of foster care, you know, uh, I, I'm not sure if he was in a shelter, in the shelter, uh, but in my opinion, or in my experience, many of the people that are, that are in the street uh, that I've known went through the shelter system and and uh, and wound up on the street. So when I when it, one of the higher ups, uh, the governor, the mayor, gonna hold the shelter directors, the shelter staff, uh, uh, you know, hold them accountable. You know, these are the people that that you're paying to do a certain job that's not being done. You know, why, why, how can we have uh, what 70,000 people in shelter for years on end? When are those questions gonna be asked? Right. Yeah, also, an, another, yeah, that is a really important point. Um, I also think, you know, something else is that his mother had been murdered by her boyfriend when he was 14. Um, the, horror, the horror of having your mother die in the same way, you know, just imagine being in, not able to, to, to fight against it. You know, you're being choked. You know, imagine going to the house of a human being. I just don't get some of, some of these trolls or some of these reporters, the questions that they ask. The information that they put out, and this is a human being that that was strangled to death, you know. And people people held his hands down, so he didn't, he couldn't even fight back. It's just beyond. Yeah, and you know, for the so-called media, it's amazing to me how little real research is done. I mean, you know, you hear all these things, and of course, in you know the right-wing media, this is big. Oh well, the subway is so dangerous. Right. Well, I mean, the majority is the mass majority. I mean, only two percent of the murders in 2022 were in the subway. So by that token, you're safer in the subway than you are outside the subway. I mean, I haven't seen one article, one person, one anything say anywhere that the majority of assaults in New York are homeless people. And I would bet dollars to donuts that that is that that it, that they're not. I, I mean, it's just it's just what we know about how things happen. But of course, we're given this perception. Oh, well, the subway is more dangerous than anywhere else in New York City. Homeless people are more dangerous than any other type of person. I mean, quite frankly, even people having mental health crises, you know, people who kill the most people in a year are not necessarily people who are having mental health crises. So we're we stigmatize everything in this society. And we look for a reason to say anything other than what Milton pointed out, that there are systems and there are structures and that these are not accidents, why people are, are there's mass homelessness in our society, even though there are more empty dwellings than there are homeless people by, by hundreds of thousands of empty dwellings in this country. There's no shortage of food, walk into any grocery store. But the reality is in America, your paycheck is your ration card. So even though there's plenty of food, plenty of housing, plenty of, of things available for you, all those things are only available to you if you make a certain amount of money. And we know that there aren't enough quality jobs provided to people to be able to survive here. And then we have these tragedies and people say, oh, I can't believe this happened. And they look for some stigma. Oh, he was homeless. Oh, it was in the subway. Oh, he had mental health issues. Well, I mean, maybe some of those things are true, but the reality is, is he never should have been in that sort of situation in the first place. And that is, is, is the greater 
question we have to ask is who's going to hold accountable Adams for cutting $615 million from the homelessness budget for backtracking on what he said he was going to do vis-a-vis buying hotels? Who's going to hold the rent guidelines board responsible for saying that they want to raise rents on rent stabilized apartments in New York in the midst of a massive housing crisis? I mean, when are we going to get to that? But instead we just get, you know, bromides and, you know, thoughts and prayers from elected officials. And as Iowa Blackbird points out, I want to make this point too, but the homeless are more likely to be victims of crime rather yes. than perpetrators of crime. Uh, not a popular idea among the yuppies in SF, uh, NYC, LA, et cetera. Uh, sorry, I, cu- I cut you off, Melton. Yeah, what were you saying? A lot of amateur psychiatrists and psychologists, you know, yeah. people who are actually diagnosed with, with things like schizophrenia, uh, all kinds of depression, anxiety, uh, as for, you know, the shelter system, they're mostly ignored. You know, these are a lot of times people that can speak for themselves of, uh, you know, people with behavioral problems, emotional problems, uh, a, a fraction, for example, of people who have diabetes, heart conditions. There's been a couple of articles for the past couple of years, you know, journalists, I don't know if you had them on your show, David Brand, and City Limits and Gotham is, you know, uh, it just uh, the amount of homeless people, people that have, di- people that, have, that are homeless that have died in the city the past four or five years, going for 400 or 600, which shocked me when I saw it. And it went up to 815 or so people that died last year due to homelessness. Many died, you know, due to a preventable uh, drug overdose. Uh, But hundreds of people, you know, so when I see these statistics, I can see actual people that have these conditions that uh, were ignored. You were, uh, there's a a lot of lateral movement in the shelter system. When people become a problem, they just get transferred to a different shelter. You know, these are people that are elderly or who all kind of health conditions that are, you get to a certain age, you know, you start asking questions, they just transfer you to a different shelter. So you get no help. Yeah, I wanted to also bring Brad on because Brad uh, is someone who, Brad, you told me that you actually saw Jordan Neely performing as someone who Mm. has been living in New York City for a while. Uh, Yeah, no, I I would see him regularly. in the subways and, you know, um, can just say he had the physical build of Michael Jackson in that he was not a large man. Uh, and so just to echo what Milton and Eugene have just been saying completely on, on point here, um, that, you know, I don't know for those of us that don't haven't spent time in New York city, you know, encountering people, you know, in not their best times and having some issues is not terribly uncommon. Uh, and I would venture to say that we've all probably, you know, bore witness to uh, a much more uh, quote unquote threatening, you know, outbursts at times than, you know, what's been described here. And none of which, uh, like Eugene was saying, uh, would justify someone becoming judge, jury, and executioner, uh, you know, to this uh, to this young man who just was a victim of our broken broken society. And um, you know, just as a personal anecdote, uh, when I was uh, I, I told Milton this earlier that when I was younger, um, a jerk that I was working with put me in a chokehold for literally no reason, just out of the blue, and. Uh, choked me out. And that from start to finish, from the start of him grabbing me and me blacking out, couldn't have been more than like 15, 20 seconds top. Mm. Uh, 
And so in, to my mind, um, let's say for the sake of argument that I accept the narrative like, oh, you're just, you know, de-escalating or you're addressing a threat, which I don't agree with, but let's say, okay, that's your argument. To me, then being a trained um, military um, a Marine, so you can't claim ignorance, uh, the minute that that continues past, say, 20, 30 seconds, you're no longer doing that. Then you're you're just you're just flat out killing this person, you know. And um, but also, uh, when when Eugene was talking, was making me think. And again, I told I was talking Milton's ear off earlier about this. Uh, that when to me, and tell me if you agree or disagree, Eugene. But um, I think that in our society, we kind of stigmatize and you know talk about focus on like, oh, what are the skeletons in, in the person, the, the victim's closet here and paint them to be the bad person and paint them out to be scary or all, all, all crime happens in the subway and fear these people and all that. All that does is to further condition us to view the unhoused as less than people, uh, you know, even so far as like animals or, or, or something to which when I, when I thought about it some more, I thought, you know, in a way that kind of makes sense, because if you were to view them as true, full human beings deserving of, you know, dignity and respect and things like that, it would make it a lot harder to just, you know, keep walking past Walk as, as you saw them on the, on the sidewalk. If you saw them as real people, it would be a lot. So in a way, I, I understand for people living in this broken society, it can kind of be a defense mechanism or a survival instinct, you know, to, because it would just be so hard to deal with uh, it, without building up that wall. But I think that that wall, it, it was put there on purpose, um, which also then allows this sort of horrible thing to happen because I don't think if the same, you know, uh, freak out were being done by a well-to-do, you know, wine mom or something like that on, on the subway. I, I don't think that the outcome would have been the same thing. Um, I think it was because this person was viewed of as, as less than a person, in, mm -hmm. if, that, if that makes sense. People should imagine a family member when they see these right. type of people. Imagine somebody that, that you knew, an old friend from high school that you haven't seen in years, and you, this is how you see them. You said these are human beings. So the rhetoric for the past a couple of years uh, beyond the pale because of the crimes that have been committed against homeless people. There's been a couple of years that uh, you could actually call people serial killers, murdering people that were sleeping. Yeah. In New York, there was a real estate agent in Florida somewhere murdering homeless people while they slept. Uh, it's, it's, it's just, I, I don't get some of the politicians, the nerve they have to get out in public. I, I don't know if they, they, they know the power of their words, you know, uh, the, the humanizing words that they use and uh, how some people uh, would take those words to to just do evil, right? Uh, I guess you know. To and as far as the the New York, uh, the mayor, the, the the governor, the governor, you know, gave her word that she was going to focus on housing this year, and uh, uh, everybody's been fighting. You know, whether it's the the, the vouchers, you know, HABP housing access voucher program, good cause that I learned recently. They have good cause in New Jersey, you know, which is basic uh, uh, protections for, for tenants. Mm -hmm. uh, and that to do nothing, you know, because at the end of the day, the the, the solution for homelessness is a home, you right. know, an actual home, you know. It's a, so, and and it's just not housing, you know, a, a shelter or an apartment, a home, which is something sacred. 
So it's, you know, so it's not something that uh, anybody can just take away from you. The, the, the police come, come into your home and murder you. It's no longer your home. So we need home. We need that, that respect. Uh, we need that sacredness. Well, and, and, and Milton, what, remind everyone you were telling me earlier, uh, what did you say roundabouts it costs uh, on our current system spending, uh, you know, to, uh, for someone to keep them in one of these sort of, you know, uh, facilities? The shelter numbers are not conclusive. You know, I've heard anything for 3500 to 8000 depending on the shelter. Is that per month? Whatever number it is, it's, it's at least twice of what uh, the most expensive apartment. <laughs> right, yeah. So, so like, to but, me... And beyond that, and the people that don't know us, in the New York City, we spend about over half a million dollars, half a million dollars, to imprison somebody for a year. Right. This is what so, we do. So it's, so it's like... It makes no sense. If you take out the, 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 the ethics, the morality, as far as the money... The money that's being spent, it makes it makes no no sense that you would spend so much money for to warehouse people in shelters where you could help right. them. Like if you're like money. if you're like if your primary concern were fiscal responsibility, right. it would be cheaper to house the people yeah. than to. But which leads me to suspect, well, then the reason that that hasn't changed is because someone somewhere is making a lot of money uh, with the way that things are. Huge business. And, you know, and then you look at, you know, the way it works with vouchers, even that they create this sub, you know, what I call a subprime market in housing, where because the voucher is not going to go that far, you have landlords who then specialize in slums. And then that becomes the excuse that the city uses to not take aggressive action against slums, because then they say, well, you know, where else are they going to go? So on and so forth. And so the whole thing has been constructed in such a way to deny dignity to people, to make them, you know, as precarious as possible in their living situations, which ultimately is all tied to keeping people's wages as low as possible by keeping people in the toughest possible situation and having to hustle and work as hard as they can just to survive in order to the fact that they, you know, will then not demand that much and not ask for that much, uh, feel, you know, disempowered to stand up for themselves. I mean, we live in a country where 160 million people, this is as of a couple months ago, are telling the Census Bureau and the Household Pulse Survey that they are having at least some trouble making their expenses week to week. That's almost every single person that works. So as my mom always says about situations like this, you know, but by the gra- uh, but for the grace of God, that's not true. Uh, the average person cannot find $400 in an emergency. And just, I think anyone out here, just imagine what happened if, if you have stable housing, and I'm not even, I don't even want to assume everyone watching this does, but if you do, then imagine losing your housing, having no recourse, Maybe not having not having any sort of stable income, and just think about the mental impact that has on you. I think people just think about the mental impact that has on you when you do have stable housing and you do have a, a job that's you know a decent job, and you still in that last week before payday are like, am I gonna make it? I mean, just think about even that stress, and then compound it by a thousand, and then again to go back to this guy Daniel Penny. I mean. What is his thought process? Yeah. I mean, who, who, wh- why is he just, dis- why is, are people trying to excuse his totally subjective decision to kill somebody? I mean, I, I, to be, from my point of view, to intervene whatsoever when the person is just yelling and, and throwing something on the ground in front of them and not Same harming they anyone. Hungry. They were hungry and thirsty. Right. Yeah. Like, it's amazing. It's amazing yeah. that you, that he would think that somehow that was a situation. And, and even beyond that, Everything that even leads up to a chokehold, like he didn't even consider any other form of of anything. He went for like the most 
dangerous, deadly thing from the beginning. And again, that's why I don't want to give him the benefit of the doubt. Oh, right. And everything now is, just, it's just like Kyle Rittenhouse. It's just like uh, George uh, Zimmerman. Yeah. It's the same thing. Everything totally. is about creating the benefit of the doubt for this person totally. in order to ultimately get them off. But why they get the benefit of the doubt. I mean, if, if this was a black person on the train who murdered somebody and it was on camera and they got them, you better believe they would not have let them go pending investigation. They would have thrown them in Rikers to rot and die. So, I mean, everything about this is 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 abnormal um, in terms of of what you would expect in a society that has dignity and respect for all people. Yeah, and someone, it's uh, disturbing that someone in the comments wrote, I, I have the right to defend myself from whomever, uh, regardless of gender. But it's not self-defense. Yeah, it's not well, self-defense. That's what I'm exactly. saying. Well, my point <laughs> is that, like, I don't like you have the right to defend yourself. There is literally nothing to be defending yourself from in this case. Right. Like you don't have the right. To, there's no death penalty for someone shouting things that shouting on a train right. does not carry with it a sentence to death. The, yeah. the, even if someone had, let's say like, uh, if some, the, the distance between restraining someone and putting someone in a chokehold is very, very large. That's not a defensive move at all. And again, as Brad pointed out, this guy was very slight. Um, this was total disproportionate force. And uh, I think it's scary that people would identify with what Penny did. I, I don't understand. They're like cosplaying as warriors or some shit. Like people some, you know, fight because you don't have to yeah. murder somebody. To, to, you don't have to to defend it. You don't have to murder people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And also, like, why there's something? It's just such bullying. Like yeah. the guy was small. He was slight. Yes, this was, was not a, very a threatening small, man. Like right. you didn't need did not need to come with that brutality. Uh, yeah. And well, there's just, it and too, imagine that, like right. like Milton was saying, imagine if that person was someone related to you. Do you think, can you get behind thinking, oh, well, everyone has the right to defend themselves, defend themselves by killing someone who was unarmed and not physically strong and not doing anything that was risking, polit uh, risking physical harm? Yeah, I think it's a good point. And, and, you know, to even give this a through line to this kind of vigilantism, I think we actually even have to go further back, right? Like, you think about the New York City fiscal crisis in 1975. That's when they eliminated the Wall Street transaction tax. So that's basically creating like a structural deficit for the city. Not that there's any lack of money, but obviously that's the primary generator of funds for uh, New York City. If you have it, there's billions of transactions, huge amount of money, and it hits right directly at the people who have the most money, who, you know, create the economic sort of structure of the city, Wall Street, so on and so forth. And I say that to say, look at 75, because then look at what starts to come after that as the city starts to deteriorate because it does not have the proper investment. Dirty Harry, uh, you know, all these movies about vigilantes in the subway. I mean, to some degree, even The Warriors. I love The Warriors. Great movie. Great New York movie. But similar sort of piece to it that, you know, we've been told or New Yorkers in the country writ large have basically been told from the mid 70s on that there's that there's no rhyme or reason to why. The city is is decrepit, falling apart, and there's nowhere for people to live and no good jobs. And there's no rhyme or reason why anyone would be affected by any sort of situation. There's just a bunch of violent criminals roaming around, 
doing whatever they want to do. And who knows why they're just super criminals. And it's not because of anything that's going on in society. So the only solution that we have is subway vigilantes. And we've had 40 years of this mass propaganda being pushed on people and no one really asking the question again, how are we in this sort of situation right now uh, where the subway has basically just become the repository for every social consequence that our society has? Because if you are on the street, they'll push you into the subways. Well, and they'll but, push you around the corner. And that, but and now that you mentioned, it just reminded me, didn't our horrible Mayor Adams uh, basically both A, kick all the unhoused out of the subway and B, flood the entire subway system with even more police like literally yes. at every station so yeah. it's like it's not like there wasn't a police person within some reasonable dis like wherever they were on the subway there was a cop nearby somewhere um yeah yeah you, you kicked everybody out the out the, the subway system then the sweeps out it in the street and just push people to the outskirts yeah, um, and and then and you you set people up for fail. You 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 just break people down, set them up for failure, and then you know when people finally reach their breaking point, and yeah, so just so funny. The, the richest so country, up, the richest state, the richest cities in history. Uh, it's just a, a bad management. You're not you're not funding uh, the, the the what what actually helps people. Right. Like, mm -hmm. How much more police do you need? You know, yeah. uh, a lot of people been out. You know, reason is like cops in every station. What can yeah. they do? Police don't don't stop crime. They they come after the crime is done. Yeah, but, like we were. It's and we don't we don't seem to be. I mean, how long are we going to keep carrying on with this? You know, maybe it was before this, but like this Reagan era mentality. Like, oh, we just haven't cracked down hard enough. Right. Like, how many decades <laughs> until we're you know what I'm saying? Like, no, for sure. And if you think about it, you know, Milton already hit on this point, but even to hit it again, what just happened in the legislature and like why we didn't get any affordable housing legislation because of good cause. So basically the landlord industry of commercial real estate of New York, this huge multi-billion dollar industry preferred to actually have no affordable housing in the state whatsoever than have a law adopted that would say you can only evict people when they break the rules of their lease. Well, I mean, that's all good cause eviction is, is that you have the rules that are there and you can only evict someone if they've broken the rules that both sides have signed on the dotted line are the rules you'll follow, which I think most of us consider to be pretty fair. So $3,400 a month median rent, massive housing crisis, people have been forced to leave the, the city and the state left and right. And the landlords of New York City preferred that than to, than to give up the right to evict people for no reason at all. So the callousness and how it flows down, like I think we have to connect those landlords to, to Daniel Penny. And I actually, maybe some people would say I'm saying too much, but I put them on an equal plane because the landlords know that they are sending people out in the streets, that they are putting people in a position where they're going to be more vulnerable, where they could die, where their lives are going to be significantly degraded and significantly more difficult because they want to make sure that they can kick you out of your apartment for no reason. Like that's social death. Like they're willing to consign thousands of people to social death. And then we have the real deaths that happen as a result of those kind of policies. And so someone needs to be talking about, you know, the partnership for New York types, the real estate boards, all these people, because, you know, they, they, I think also have blood on their hands. Here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, because you could probably speak to this better than I could, Eugene, but you know, I think it's pretty clear the, 
particularly in New York City, the real estate lobby has a very, very large amount of power when it comes to city politics and legislation. Would you would you say that they do like a, a, would a lot of the things uh, the reasons why things don't change in that regard is because of the real estate lobby uh, pushing it back against it uh, in within New York City politics? I think so for sure. I mean, it's not that they don't have the information. I mean, Milton could speak to it. We got groups like Vocal that are out there at all the city council hearings, at the state legislature, all around, laying it all out, really smart position papers, people giving great speeches. So to me, the only thing that could possibly make sense here is the money that's being pushed, that's being tossed around the hundred. I mean, you look at what happened in the last city election and some of the DSA candidates, right. you know, who had hundreds of thousands of dollars from billionaires flooding into city council, state assembly races, uh, just to defeat candidates who are going to favor things like good cause eviction, which again is just not being able to evict someone for no reason whatsoever. And I think we've seen that palpably over the last couple of years. And we've seen the freak out over it. You know, I mean, even in the national media now, you know, you had the New York Times article about Jay Jacobs, the head of the New York Democratic Party, um, and how people oh, yeah. are unhappy with him because he's responsible for the Republicans doing so much better. Because right. instead of promoting the policies that people in New York want to see, he's spending all the money and all the time trying to destroy any candidate that actual voters in the state and the city want to see. So I think we can see the power of big money just on display here. I mean, the fact that there's no Wall Street transactions tax, I know that's a small thing, but it's actually still technically on the books. It's just not assessed. And like, it, given the amount of money, I mean, 2021, for instance, was the greatest year for corporate profits in America. 2022 was like the next best year for corporate profits in America. So imagine if we already have a $90 million budget in New York City. I mean, imagine if that was $300 billion. Like that's the kind of stuff you would be able to do. And we, I mean, we'd be talking about other problems maybe, but I think we wouldn't have to be talking about the issue. I mean, you go to Hudson Yards, everything is empty. Why do we not have money to turn that into quality housing for people? I mean, it's all these questions that have obvious answers, um, but but we miss them because there's all this other Jordan Neely did X, Y, and Z. And I also just want to say that just because you did something in the past doesn't yeah. mean anything about who you are now. And I've had the privilege of meeting a lot of people in my life who, you know, have, as they would tell you, committed serious harms against other people, but you would never know that if you met them now because they face consequences, they took accountability, they've turned their lives around, and now they're making huge positive impacts on other people. So whatever he did, you know, did he assault the, this woman? Uh, you know, whatever he did, whatever he said, whatever other arrests happened, uh, none of that says anything about that's necessarily anything about who he was anyway. But even if it did say something about who he was, it doesn't say anything about who he is now. I mean, you've got the New York Post quoting a woman on Reddit like the most anonymous of all anonymous forms that could ever exist, saying, oh, yesterday, the day before, he tried to push me onto the tracks. What? No video, no photo, no Reddit, nothing? Yeah. So you can just say anything about him? It feeds the narrative. It, you know, it, it yeah. Feeds, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Milton, can you tell us what uh, the homelessness union is, what you guys are working on, and what Vocal is, and what Vocal works on? Uh, Vocal New York, some of this union, Vocal New York, you know, consists of uh, four different unions, the Positive Leaders Union, Users Union, Civil Rights Union, been around for 20 years, started off as NICAN. Uh, and so we just, uh, uh, you know, like actually we have the, the new T-shirt, which, you know, it helps me as far as what we do overall. Uh, the new T-shirt, it says, you fight for policies of justice and equity. You see the heart right there? Politics of love and compassion. Oh, yeah. When people ask me about the shelter system, which I think it, it, 
post for people that know the, the foster care shows, foster care system, carceral system, prison system, the belly of the beat. Wait, is there are those shirts something that audience members could get that would uh, or are those not? Call up vocunyork.org. Okay. I, I'll um, put it in the description too. Yeah, that's the belly of the beast. Like the brother mentioned, you know, people that I've known that are in the shelter, uh, been 10, 30, 40 years uh, that you cannot tell unless they actually told you. Uh, uh-uh. managed to do that because they rehabilitated themselves a lot of most of the time with the support of their family. You know, uh, so as you know, the system is just, it'll kill you if you let it. So uh, as far as the uh, the, the Vocal New York uh, uh, allied organizations, whether it's Met Council, the Neighbors Together, uh, Safety Net, Urban Justice, uh, Cuff, uh, Make the Road, uh, organizations that sometimes focus on different things, but then come together in coalitions like Housing Justice for All, Tax the Rich. There's been progress. I'm, this is new to me. I've been, you know, three years now. It's, it, you know, it's, it's, it shocked me when... Uh, Selena Travel came to the shelter about three years ago and let us know what was going on. You know, there was seven seven people that became member of and they were all in my in my dorm, a 20-man dorm. So, you know, it's, it's I've just seen, you know, sometimes it's incremental slow change, but there is change to, to this progress to the positive. We just need more people. We need more people to be involved uh, uh, and they, they throughout in the city and in the state. We take for granted that the however hard it is in the city. The rest of New York State gets little to no help uh, that we get here. You know, this is this is terrible. You know, we have chapters in Albany, Syracuse, Rochester, Buffalo, and uh, it's very difficult. So we just need more people to to you know, let, let let's build let's build power together. Uh, let's make things better for 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 everybody. As you know, the real estate it's not a, a, about profit. It's how huge a profit they want to make. Because you know you can't lose money in real estate. Uh, so it should be people over profits. Uh, it, 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 it just what's been happening the past couple of years with the pandemic. Uh, there were things that were done positive to to to, to for for people, whether it's unemployment, uh, Medicaid, that they've taken away. You know, but they did it. You know, it, it, they prove it could be done. Right. The world did not end. So it's in recent memory there was uh, there was progress that was taken away. We just got to get it back, and it's you know for everybody to to contribute. It's not about hate. It's about coming together and make, make things better for, for everybody. Yeah. We always got to keep an eye on, on, on the people that are really struggling. You know, it's just, uh, I'm not a particular religious person, but being in, 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 uh, in the shelter system all these years, you know, going through food pantries, soup kitchens and such, all these different religions have a, a one thing in common. You know, you have to look out for the poor. Right. And you just got to continue to do that. Yeah, no, I, and I think that's a great point, and and why I I think that there was such an effort to keep it as short and sweet as possible regarding uh, the pandemic was that you know if people really got a taste or experienced what was possible, you know, like uh, aid could be given and and these things could happen uh, if people really experienced that there would be no unringing that bell. Uh, and that's why it was like, no, we can't, we got to get, put a, put a stop to that. And uh, as, as again, earlier, uh, Milton and I were talking about during the pandemic, 
I'm sure many of you noticed there was a lot of reporting on like the shoplifting in New York City, you know, but, you know, these were people that were shoplifting like baby formula and like diapers and stuff. They weren't, they weren't shoplifting like DVDs and whatever. It was, these were like crimes of necessity. Um, And seems to me in large part, a lot of the solution in a lot of these stores now is just to put all the products behind glass cases and locked cabinets and stuff like that. And it, it just, to what you were saying earlier, Eugene, to me, it just shows like what the current system, what they would prefer over actually, you know, meaningfully making some positive changes. Um, and, and yeah, the only way to make that change, I think is what, like what Milton is saying is with, you know, everybody coming together because they're, they're clear. They're, they're not going to do it themselves clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I, I, I don't want to uh, detract from you two brilliant gentlemen any longer, but thanks for having me on. Thanks, no, thanks Brad. Brad. Well, any, any final thoughts? You guys have been really generous with your time, but just want to give you another chance to say anything you haven't said. As far as the Jordan Neely situation, uh, people that are, are, are afraid of a, uh, homeless people, uh, black people, poor people, uh, you, you have no right to do harm, you know? So, so the, the doctors are, are, you know, are looked at society and, you know, as the elite do no harm. This is my advice. Mm-hmm. I would just say, if we want a better world, we're going to have to to fight for it. You know, I mean, I think that's what we've seen is it's not going to be handed by any silver platter. The entire political class obviously is, is, is more concerned with, you know, pleasing their, their paymasters than addressing the issues facing people like Jordan Neely, somebody I saw in the, in the chat. And yes, I, I do check my DMs by the way, but I will keep a tighter look on it. But they asked me to explain the flag behind me, which is the MST flag, it's the landless workers movement in Brazil, 1 million people. It's almost 1% of the country. Um, they've become one of the largest producers of, of sustainable agriculture uh, in the entire Latin America. They've been one of the most transformative forces, the environment. And I don't want to go on and on. You can go to breakthroughnews.org and see our documentary we did about them. But the point I want to make is none of that was handed to them. They occupy land, they seize land, they take it over. Sometimes they have to occupy a place 10 or 20 times because they're constantly kicked off by the police. But you know they do whatever it takes to stand up and to challenge people. And they do it in a beautiful way. They establish settlements with thousands of families. They live in this sort of communal socialist type of, of, of way, but also provide a broader vision for all of Brazil about how you don't have to have big agribusiness, pesticides and the like. And I think when you look at movements like that, uh, having the privilege to have been with them, that's something that we can do too. Um, we just have to be willing to come together in large enough numbers to make a difference. So I think everyone who is who's upset about this, now's the time to organize. Find an organization and 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 find a way that you can put shoulder to the wheel because it's all it's going to take all of us to make a change. Thanks again for listening to the Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.